Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Food. I'm your host, Ari Ariel, and today I'll be talking to Garrett Broad, Assistant Professor in the Department of Communication and Media Studies at Fordham University, about his wonderful new book, More Than Just Food, Food Justice and Community Change, published by the University of California Press in 2016. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure. So I wonder if we could begin by you telling us a little bit maybe about yourself and how you came to this project. Yeah, you know, uh, the, the genesis for me, I started getting interested in food a dozen years or so ago uh, at a time when we were starting to see a lot of public conversation around the food system, you know, documentaries and you know, films like Food Inc. and Michael Pollan books and then, you know, the Michelle Obama you know, initiatives. And, and so all this sort of discussion in society and in popular culture around food. And, you know, prior to that, I think like a lot of folks, I hadn't really given a lot of thought to the centrality of the food system in terms of global environmental health, in terms of ethics. I mean, I think like a lot of folks, I was sort of a mindless eater in many ways. Um, But what I realized through that process and starting to take it on as both an activist around food issues and as a scholar, um, that food offered this really, really valuable entry point into a whole variety of issues related to health, equity, and sustainability. Um, And so uh, I sort of uh, found myself moving from the East Coast to the West Coast uh, in graduate school. I was in Los Angeles at the University of Southern California and, again, started to really get engaged in kind of grassroots political organizing uh, and community organizing around food. I helped found a community garden in, uh, in my, my neighborhood in the east part of Hollywood. Um, and, and, you know, and Hollywood is, is not as glamorous as it seems uh, in the movies. It was a, you know, a sort of mixed income community, immigrant community in many respects, um, and was also doing work in South Los Angeles around a number of social justice and community organizing initiatives. Um, and it was through some of those experiences that I actually started to, to take on a little more of a critical lens about the kind of dominant narratives around food that I was seeing in popular media, um, where I was seeing, uh, in, in many ways, a sort of overly romanticized vision of food and urban agriculture and community and school gardens. Um, you know, this sort of idea that, uh, you know, if we all just come together and grow food together, then magically all our problems will disappear. You know, I, I sort of have these, I, I make this joke of, you know, being part of this multicultural community garden and expecting that, you know, once we all started growing food together, we would all just be speaking Esperanza, the universal language, and there would be no cultural or economic differences between any of us. Um, and that just wasn't the experience that I was finding in food movement activism or in the scholarship, um, but rather that food was still a site of significant inequity. Um, and, and I was hoping to develop a project that could help me explore, you know, a kind of food movement activism and food movement scholarship that could interrogate 
both the possibilities of doing food-related organizing in urban communities, but also pointed to some of the limitations. You know, what doesn't food get us to? Uh, in what ways are, are we overly romanticizing the power of food, but how can we then use food to build on to make social justice, equity, environmental justice, food justice a reality? So that was sort of the genesis of, of the whole way of thinking for me. And a lot of the methodology is revolved around something that you're calling engaged scholarship. So I wonder if you could just tell our listeners a, a bit about that and how it how it impacted your writing of the book. Yeah, you know, in, engaged scholarship, there's a number of different terms that get used, you know, for this idea of doing academic research that actively engages with community members, with uh, – uh, people from historically marginalized uh, communities that contributes to activism and practice. Um, and, you know, as I'm sure many of our listeners know, um, those uh, especially who come from the academic world, um, that, you know, we're, we're not necessarily incentivized in, in academia to do work that has real world implications or to collaborate uh, with community groups or, you know, nonprofits uh, or even government. Um, you know, it's often seen as this sort of like extra nice thing to do, you know, as part of service. Um, but I think there's a real opportunity to blend, and I'm by, by no means the first person to say this. There's a history of this. Um, there's a really strong movement, I think, of of young scholars, but also more senior scholars who see, uh, you know, this this chance to use the privilege that we have to do the sort of deep thinking and, and the resources that we have accessible to us in academia and develop real partnerships with groups that are trying to make social change happen on the ground. Um, so, you know, in, in that sense, one engaged scholarship for me is about trying to use my work to contribute to the kind of social and political and environmental world I'd like to see. But it's also about recognizing that me, you know, I'm a you know, a, a middle-class white kid from the suburbs, you know, uh, and writing about food injustice and writing about, you know, folks doing organizing in African-American and Latino and multicultural, multilingual communities that I'm not a part of. You know, food injustice is not something that I've experienced in my daily life. And so for me to ever be able to kind of make any claims about what I see as the problems and what potential solutions could be, it seems to me that it makes an awful lot of sense to do that kind of collaborative and engaged work, right? So, so not only do I think there's an ethical imperative in many ways for, for academics and scholars to do this engagement and try to contribute, you know, to, to promote the values and the issues that we care about, but I also just think in terms of like scholarly rigor and, 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 and sound methodology, to be so disconnected from the groups we're writing about, I think that kind of classic anthropological, ethnographic distance and objectivity, I think, has been shown to be in many ways a, a sort of false uh, goal uh, and, and not necessarily even a productive goal if we're trying to get to the heart of the issues that we're studying. So it's important then that it's a, it's, this study was done on a community level. How did you get embedded into the community that you did or, or involved maybe is a better sure. word? Sure. Um, you know, I, as I mentioned, I, I started, you know, pretty early on in my time in Los Angeles. I, I just got in, got, literally got my hands dirty in, in the grass and the weeds. And um, it was through this garden that I helped to start. Um, one that I, I, I started building some relationships with folks throughout the city of Los Angeles in particular – uh, there's a pretty vibrant food movement happening there, as in many cities across the country. Um, 
so started making connections to uh, folks doing urban agriculture, nutrition, education, uh, healthy food access, anti-poverty initiatives around food. Um, and, you know, at the same time, starting as well to think about it as, a, as an avenue for scholarly inquiry. Um, I met uh, the, the group that sort of becomes my central case study in the book is an organization called Community Services Unlimited, which I'd, I'd be happy to talk a little bit more uh, in a few minutes about their history and, and that relationship in particular. Um, but they were a group that I, I came across pretty early on. Um, I was invited to a, a sort of fundraiser dinner that they were hosting in South Los Angeles. Um, and I was really interested in their approach. You know, they were an organization that I felt politically uh, was coming at it from a, a similar place, you know, that they were using food, urban agriculture, uh, nutrition education, doing work in schools, doing work in the community uh, around food. But the whole concept was about social and racial and economic justice. And so, you know, to me, this was, this was a, an interesting connection that I wasn't hearing from a lot of the other groups, not just in Los Angeles, but around the country and around the world that were, I think, a lot of times just doing food for food's sake, which is fine. But, but my political position is that, you know, that, that isolating food from other inequalities and, and social movements is, is not going to get us to where we need to be. So I, I just started, honestly, first, you know, the, the la I did not show up and say, hi, my name's Garrett, and, you know, I'm a researcher, and I want to I work with you. Uh, also, knowing that this was an organization, like many organizations, in lower-income communities and communities of color, they've come across a lot of academics over the years, and oftentimes have had, you know, less-than-ideal experiences in, in which academics sort of parachute in, get what they want out of a research collaboration and then don't continue that collaboration in any way beyond publishing papers, often don't even share results, don't contribute, etc. And so, you know, before I was Garrett, the collaborative researcher, I was Garrett, just another guy volunteering at a garden work day. Um, and, and, and putting that time in and getting to know why these people were doing the work that they were doing, spending a lot more time listening uh, and building those relationships than, than saying what I think should be done. For that first, you know, I'd say two years or so, uh, I was really there as a volunteer, as an activist, as a friend, helped organize some events, you know, and then over time we started, you know, developing some, some more research-oriented relationships. I would help them think about some strategic planning and some grant applications and contribute some sort of scholarly background to their, you know, applications or their, their way of thinking about issues related to things like food deserts and, and activism um, and, and scholarship and, and et cetera. And then after a few years of developing this relationship, that's when I said, hey, you know what, I think there's something here. Um, that that we could use this relationship and the connections that I've made through this time and also connections that that this organization, Community Services Unlimited, had made or, over time um, to explore, you know, what is this food justice movement, this community-based food justice movement. And so it was really about putting that time in, uh, developing those relationships, building trust first, um, and then, you know, it continues to this day. It's not like I published this book and then, you know, that was that. 
Um, but no, I've remained in contact with them and, and with a number of other organizations and activists that are highlighted uh, throughout the project. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really about continuing this conversation, continuing this collaboration, contributing in what ways I think scholarly work can, also using it as a platform uh, to get their voices heard in some arenas where maybe they're, they're not heard as often, um, you know, using the privilege that I have of having, you know, letters at the end of my name and a university affiliation and a book now published with a major university press, you know, folks start to listen to folks like me with those, you know, for better or for worse, that's often the case. And so, you know, continuing and, and having built that trust up over time, I think they trust that I'm going to continue in doing more public kind of scholarship, more engaged, you know, approaches to, to talking to, to the public about these issues that I'll, you know, continue to keep their interest in mind as I'm doing that work. They have a, a really interesting history. Maybe you could tell us a little more about Community Services Unlimited and, and sort of their history and how it impacts their their goals and strategies now. Yeah, you know, I, I, as I said, when I first met them at this fundraising dinner, um, I was impressed and a little surprised because they were a little different from um, many of the other food-based groups that I had come in contact with before. I mean, especially working in low-income communities on these issues and in communities of color, I think there's been a there's it's become a big topic right doing healthy food access work doing you know nutrition education with young people in particular oftentimes those organizations uh, are that are doing this work are coming from outside of the community um, bringing in sort of outside perspectives and trying to get people to eat good food based on those outside ways of thinking um, often you know not from communities of color, often not from low-income communities. And that's not a bad thing necessarily, um, although I think there's often some issues with the approach that gets taken. But what I was getting when I met Community Services Unlimited, I'll, I'll call them CSU, um, was a different kind of story and a different kind of history. They were actually founded in the 1970s originally as the nonprofit arm of a reformulated chapter of the Black Panther Party. Um, and, you know, for me, uh, growing up, I didn't know much about the Black Panther Party, and what I did know was usually not very flattering. Um, certainly growing up in, in white America in particular, I think the stories that we hear about a group like the Black Panthers are, you know, hey, things were bad for people of color, for African Americans in particular in the 60s and 70s. Um, so their grievances were legitimate, but their tactics were all wrong. And, you know, the Black Panthers are sort of put forth as the antithesis of Martin Luther King, who did it the right way. Um, you know, nonviolent civil disobedience versus militant, violent, aggressive activism that did more harm than good. That's the story that I always got. Uh, and, and I think others um, uh, could, could, could relate. Um, but what I learned in doing this work uh, was something that maybe some folks listening know about, but I imagine many folks don't. Um, which is that the Black Panther Party actually shifted um, early on from a more militant approach, uh, which, which remained in certain respects, but really started to develop a variety of community-based programs in chapters across the country. They called them survival programs. And the idea was, you know, that they could use these programs as a way to build a base of of committed movement members um, and that there were very real needs in communities of color in low-income communities and African-American communities in particular, basic survival needs that needed to be dealt with that 
government and business were not dealing with. So they did things like um, uh, uh, safe escorting program, escort programs for seniors. Um, they did major uh, people's free uh, medical clinics in cities across the country. And one of their most successful programs was something called the Free Breakfast for Children program. They did a number of food-related programs. Um, but the Free Breakfast for Children program was one of their, their – probably their most successful of all their survival programs. Just to give some numbers, in, in the year 68 – school year 68 to 69 alone, they fed over 20,000 school children across the country. And this is at a time before – there was a national school lunch program. Um, there was, you know, not federal support in this way. Um, and people were going hungry. And here was a group like the Black Panther Party, uh, vilified by many, that was providing these really essential needs, using it to feed people, but also using it to organize people. Because once you get people eating, you know, that's when the conversations about capitalism, about racism, about community development can happen. Um, and, you know, it's, it's the kind of thing that, that, uh, throughout the life of the Black Panther Party, uh, there was major government infiltration and attempts to deconstruct and, uh, uh, radical groups like the Black Panthers. The FBI had something called COINTELPRO, that their main charge was to try to you know, bring down groups like the Black Panther Party. And interestingly, there are some memos you can see of, of uh, FBI leaders, J. Edgar Hoover among them, saying that the most dangerous thing that the Black Panther Party was doing was not the guns, not the, you know, militancy, but it was programs like the Free Breakfast for Children program because that could build legitimacy within the community. So Community Services Unlimited was founded in the mid-1970s to house these kinds of programs um, and sort of evolved and changed over time. And then in the early 2000s, um, a woman uh, named Neelam Sharma uh, took over. She, her husband at the time was a guy named Kweku Duran, uh, who had been uh, the leader of, of Community Services Unlimited uh, and, 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 and helping to run this reformulated uh, chapter of the Black Panther Party and then some other uh, initiatives around, uh, around uh, he was a lawyer as well. But uh, led by this woman, Neelam Sharma, she really helped shift the focus of, of CSU specifically to food issues. Uh, seeing in the early 2000s, uh, she actually had come from, from Britain um, and seeing and, and raising children in South LA and seeing just what a, a very difficult food situation it was and what a desire there was among community members to have better food and to use food as a community development tool. So over the last 15 years or so, CSU has really focused on being a food justice organization, sort of using that term before it was a, a well-recognized term at all. Um, and so they do things like uh, community gardens, uh, school gardens, community uh, uh, programs around cooking and nutrition and gardening. Uh, they also have developed a for-profit social enterprise within their nonprofit. Uh, and so are doing job training, internships, uh, employing you know, several local community members, uh, selling their food. Uh, they're actually in the process now of trying to build, uh, they, they, they purchased a building and are trying to turn it into uh, South LA's first 
organic food market. Um, they call it a beyond organic because they don't have USDA certification for a number of reasons. Um, but, uh, but also making it a community event space because for them, as I mentioned, you know, food, as the book title says, is about more than just food. It's about community development. It's about economic empowerment. It's also about cultural awareness and cultural knowledge and cultural awakening because what they do is they work particularly with young people to recognize, you know, that they've got skills and knowledge about food and health within them. I think oftentimes, you know, there's this tendency in food-based programming to assume that kids in particular and kids of color in particular just have no idea about food and have no connection to good food. And what a group like CSU does is works with young people and community members to sort of combat that very... Uh, uh, that that narrative that sort of takes power away from them and to help understand and unlock the cultural histories of African-American history, of Latino, Mexican-American history in Southern California, uh, as an example, to show what an important role those groups have played in creating good food over time and, and, and what role food and cooking has played within those cultures over the course of generations. There's a really interesting section in, in chapter three, I think, where you talk about the interplay between sort of systems of knowledge and the authority of science yep. and medicine and then forms of community knowledge. So it, how does that play out in that? In, in that yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting point that you bring up because one of the things that I, I try to do in this book, and I think the position of being where I am, not really sitting as a member of one of these communities I'm writing about, but also not trying to take this sort of you know, disinterested, uh, uh, you know, objective social science or science view from the outside. I try to sort of both uh, lift up the voices in the way that I can of community activists doing this work um, in a way that I think often doesn't get done in sort of mainstream public health and food and nutrition work. Um, but at the same time, maybe at times sort of critique the community narratives as well um, and and demonstrate the ways that uh, that this community building work is not isolated from the sort of structures of power that they're critiquing at the same time so you know you mentioned this sort of discussion of science and and what you get a lot in these sort of food justice uh, spaces is this real strong championing of community knowledge and of community power and, and sort of rhetoric that says, you know, we have the knowledge, we have the power, we don't need others to, you know, help us overcome the health challenges, the food system challenges. We need to do it ourselves, right? Um, and we have the, the ability to do it ourselves. And I think there's some real value in that kind of empowerment rhetoric. Um, but, but if you look deep into the work that's getting done, um, I think there's, uh, there, there also needs to be a recognition that this work is being facilitated by, as I said, the very sort of power structures and government and corporate food that these groups are, are, are setting themselves up as opposed to. So, you know, they champion local knowledge and cultural knowledge about food um, and sort of say, you know, you won't read this in a science nutrition textbook, but, you know, this home remedy that I use aloe for is really valuable. But because we're getting funded in this project by a medical school, we can't write that in the literature we're giving out. Right. So we do see these kind of interesting negotiations at time between scientific knowledge and more grassroots cultural knowledge. And, and one of the things I try to demonstrate is how 
the lines between these are probably much more blurred than either side w- is is willing to admit. Um, and and you know, there's also aspects of this sort of food justice uh, rhetoric that I at times you know don't necessarily ascribe to. I think there are certain assumptions within activist communities around. Uh, food and, and nutrition and and corporate power that I'm I'm sympathetic to, um, but but think that there uh, that there are at times some some holes in the sort of scientific critique. I don't get into it too much in in the book, but I think GMOs are a place where we see a lot of a lot of this. Where you know within certain food justice groups, um, I think the rhetoric around the dangers of genetically modified foods. Um, the proven dangers to health, cancer-causing, etc., cetera, uh, are sometimes accepted as fact when the science of it is a little more murky, um, if, if not completely opposed to that perspective. And, and while I think there are really good critiques that you get from community activists about sort of the political and economic foundations of corporate food and of GMOs and, and sort of who's controlling our food system, you know, sometimes the scientific negotiation is, is not as clear. One of the things I like to say is I sort of wish that um, sort of pro, hardcore sort of pro-science and co- corporate food folks could take like a really good sociology of science and critical race, you know, uh, uh, or in community development class to sort of understand the role of community knowledge and, and the constructed nature of science. And I also think it probably would be good for community activists to take a good biology class. And maybe if we could sort of find that, that middle way between where we're critical of power structures that have historically marginalized and oppressed certain types of communities in food and agriculture, we can be critical of that while also not necessarily believing everything we see on Facebook. You know what I mean? And, and, and not to caricature uh, the community activists I work with, uh, but, but that's the kind of negotiation that I see around these different types of knowledge in the food justice activist community. So those kind of negotiations and certain the tension maybe between being a, a grassroots organization and larger structures seemed clearest to me in, in terms of uh, engaging with the capitalist system. Yep. Could you talk maybe a little bit about how CSU sustains itself, how it has revenue, what, what sort of, you know, yeah. how does it yeah, work? Yeah, you know, and, and, and I use CSU as sort of the central case study, not to say every group that does this work is like this, but there are a number of other groups around the country that do this kind of community-based approach to food justice. They take different forms. Um, I, I speak with a number of them in the book. Um, so CSU is, is sort of my anchoring organization, but I, I talk, for instance, to a number of different activists involved in this group called, this network called Rooted in Community, which is this national network of youth-focused food justice organizations. CSU was the host of a, a major summit for them uh, in a few years back in Los Angeles that I helped to, to organize. And, you know, through those conversations, I followed up with a number of those folks there. And through this whole process, I was really interested in, you know, yeah, how are these groups funding themselves? You know, most of them are coming as nonprofit organizations. Um, and, and again, this gets back to that sort of tension around, is this community driven or are they depending on outside support? Um, and so there's a lot of contestation around the role of money in this work and, and coming up against what many of the activists I talk to refer to as the nonprofit industrial complex. Um, you know, this idea that there is this 
this system around getting grants, around the major funders, around, you know, and, and in the food space, that's groups like the USDA, in the public sector, um, the, the uh, Kellogg Foundation, in the, pri- in the you know, private foundation sector. But, you know, uh, and engaging, trying to figure out, you know, how do we try to advance our really radical social justice, racial justice, economic justice aims while existing in this nonprofit industrial complex. And so I talk to a lot of activists who struggle with this. And, and this is something, you know, I've done work on other community organizing and nonprofit organizing uh, sectors and something I see not just in food at all. Um, and there's been other scholarship on this as well in different sectors. But, you know, ultimately, these groups need funding to make their programming happen. And I think, you know, this gets back to the sort of romanticizing of some of this community-led work that I've seen over the years that I've read other scholarship. This was one of the things that sort of encouraged me to, to dig into this, uh, this issue of funding and money um, in this project because I had seen other scholarship that sort of glossed over the fact that, you know, many of these groups doing really strong, transformative work around food system activism, they're sort of saying, hey, he, look at this example of a group that's developing this, you know, this project outside of capitalism, outside of money. Um, but I would investigate this and say, actually, you know, the money's coming from somewhere to support full-time staff members or to support, you know, youth internships or, or to, to support, you know, the money needed or the time needed to grow food on a daily basis or to, you know, bring food in and start, you know, community markets, et cetera. And so I, I explore this, these sort of hybrid networks of community activists and funders and then strategies to develop, you know, economic uh, equity and wealth within the communities themselves. And um, so, you know, a group like CSU depends in large part on major grants that they've been pretty successful at getting um, over the years, although they've had to sort of develop the right language around the work that they do to appeal to certain funders, and it's always been a negotiation process for them. And they've worked hard to try to maintain their social and political commitments while also sort of hitting the buzzwords that, that you need to in this work, and they're by no means alone in this. But sort of looking again to uh, sort of some of the history of the Black Panther Party, actually, um, they've also seen how important it is to develop an, a, a sustainable economic model. Something, you know, there are many reasons that the Black Panther Party eventually unfolded, right? And there were major internal problems with the Black Panther Party uh, related to misogyny and drugs and violence. Um, there was major, uh, you know, external pressure placed on them by groups like COINTELPRO. Um, a number of reasons uh, why the Black Panther Party uh, eventually disbanded. But one of them that, that I discovered in this work was they had this very critical perspective on capitalism, um, a commitment to a sort of socialist revolution, and drawing from some oral histories I read of, of some former members, there were some really incisive critiques saying, you know, they were so blinded by that ideology that they overlooked the need to develop a strong economic 
model, a strong economic base. You know, the Panther Party owned buildings. They owned health clinics, you know, but they didn't cultivate that over time and, and lost that kind of equity. So groups like CSU, uh, many of them are really in this moment trying to figure out sustainable economic models that one could make them more independent of government funding, of private foundation funding and all the sort of strings that come with being part of that nonprofit industrial complex, but doing sort of social enterprise, social innovation in which their bottom line remains community power, but they develop sustainable economic models to make that happen. So as I mentioned, they're developing market-based programs you know, food, uh, they have a food delivery, uh, they grow food and also bring food in from, from other local farmers, um, particularly farmers of color in the, in the region. Um, they distribute that food, they, they sell that food, they're now, uh, they, they, do, they have a catering service, um, they are, are now trying to develop, as I said, this, uh, you know, sort of standalone market um, and, and, and have events and fundraisers and all sorts of different ways. And I think, you know, looking around, CSU is one of many groups doing this and trying to figure out other economic models um, to make this happen, to make them, you know, more independent of, of the foundation money, but, but never fully independent of the logics of capital. Um, and so I do think it sometimes in activist communities that come from the sort of far left, there's this really knee-jerk reaction to anything related to money. They sort of don't want to deal with it and they want to develop a sustainable model that doesn't go there, right? And I think the example of CSU and other groups I highlight shows, you know, it's sort of easy for those folks to say, you know, but when you're actually trying to do this work and you're trying, for instance, to get youth involved, you know, a really good way to get youth involved, offer them a stipend, right? Because that's going to keep them coming back and they're going to, you know, invest in the work more because then they're able to use that money to support themselves and to and to also just have a basic incentive for participation and there we can build you know leaders with uh, some engagement with the market is it a perfect system no but i think to the extent that we want to develop you know sustainable solutions we need to engage with the market in productive ways and if we do it from a sort of vision based perspective with our values sort of leading the edge, then I think that's, you know, somebody, if, if we don't do that as, as folks who are value conscious around this, somebody else will. And those market opportunities will disappear for folks who are going to do it with the community's best interest at in mind. And they seem to be able to do two things at one time, right? They seem to be involved in this market-based nonprofit um, industry, at least to an extent, but also they're networked into, into groups like Rooted in Community, it's sort of national level um, food justice groups, yeah. right? Yeah, and I think, you know, that's something we see uh, a real challenge moving forward. I think what many of these groups that do community-based food justice organizing do great is the community-based work. You know, they're knocking on doors, they're building relationships, they're doing those one-on-one -on -one sort of transformative experiences with young people or community members, building local power around this stuff. And that's a lot of work in its own right. But I do think moving forward, the food justice movement, if it wants to be a sustainable movement, needs to continue to figure out ways to link up. I think a group like Rooted in Community is one way of doing that, bringing together you know, youth from around the country to see that, hey, the same thing that 
we're experiencing in South LA is what we're experiencing in Camden, New Jersey is what we're experiencing on the South side of Chicago is what we're experiencing in, you know, Arizona, right. With certain different social, economic and cultural differences, but that linking up of, of perspectives and broadening the horizon of, of, of activists is really important, building these connections networked across the country. Um, but it does seem like continuing to build that up in the future, also engagement more in policy, uh, I think, is an area where uh, uh, food justice could continue to, to have its voice heard. Um, I don't think policy alone is the answer. So I do sort of uh, there have been critiques of community-based food justice work saying, you know, it's too small scale, it's too focused on, you know, individuals and local community power, and what they really need to do is change federal policy. And my response to that is, and, and what I hear from the activists who are doing this work is, you know, one, we can do both. Um, two, if we change the policies, but the folks on the ground are not prepared with the skills, the knowledge, the passion to support that policy and to enact that policy, then that policy is, is going to be, you know, go for naught. Um, and, and so those are some key points uh, that I think come through in this kind of work as we look forward. Yes, we need to link to policy. Yes, we need to link across different geographic areas, across sector, um, not just consumers, but also producers. Um, and, but, but we need to do all those things and not sort of say that one or the other is going to be the answer. I really do think it needs to be a holistic approach moving forward. And it seems like there, there's more and more competition also for controlling the narrative around food justice, right? Yep. So in your, in your last chapter, you start to talk about the AHA and the Roy Finley project as sort of competitors to CSU. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I use... Uh, the American Heart Association uh, and this guy Ron Finley. Uh, some folks might be familiar. He has a TED talk that that went viral. The the gangster gardener of of Los Angeles, of South Central Los Angeles. Um, I, I know Ron a little bit from doing this work. Um, I think. What I try to do, you know, my background is actually in media and communication studies. And so one of the things I'm really interested in in this project is exploring the stories that get told about what the problems are and what the solutions can be and how different groups are able to control the narrative around those issues. Um, and what I find is that a lot of the groups doing the community-based work that are really embedded in the community of the community um, struggle or often f are not particularly interested um, or, or, or have difficulty getting attention telling they're more nuanced argument about what the social problems are, what the what food can do, and what food can't do, um, and and so they don't get a lot of media attention outside of a few sort of spokespersons. Uh, Will Allen, as one example, has gotten some attention. There are a few others, but what you see is tons of groups, as I mentioned earlier in this conversation, that are getting engaged in this work, um, coming in to communities like Los Angeles. Um, maybe building a garden or two, and then creating really slick, beautiful media, having connections to major Hollywood people, to major TV networks, and 
doing a lot of sort of corporate social responsibility partnerships and getting their story out there. Um, and, and in this slick kind of way, uh, well-produced with celebrity partners and celebrity advocates. That's something I'm really critical in this book of, of the American Heart Association, a particular program called the Teaching Gardens that goes around and builds gardens in schools across the country. Um, and I love gardens. I think there should be school gardens in every school. Um, but when a group like this comes in and one sort of pretends or, or is unaware of the decades of work that's already been done by local activists doing just this kind of work, uh, ignores that, uh, and their leadership does not reflect the community. They're mostly white folks from outside the neighborhood. Um, and they get all this public relations but, oh, and, and they're making claims about, look what we're doing, transforming this community with this school garden and having this theory of change that says, you know, if, if these kids see where the, their food comes from by growing it in a school garden, then their health will be transformed and the health of their community will be transformed. But you know what? That, that's not true. <laughs> that, that alone is not going to transform a community that has had decades of systemic disinvestment and racial and economic exploitation. I call it the magic carrot approach, right? That if only this kid knew where his carrot came from, then he will be healthy and his whole community and the city and the world will be healthy and happy. And I think, you know, that's, that's uh, ignorant at, at best and dangerous at worst. Because what it does is it, it creates uh, among a compassionate public a false narrative about what can be done and what impact that can have. And it overshadows the work of folks doing this really hard work on the ground. Um, and so that's why I am really critical of a group like the American Heart Association for this. Again, I'm sure they're well-meaning, but, um, but I think it's, it's really unproductive and offensive uh, in many ways. Uh, a, a guy like Ron Finley, I think the jury is still out to a certain extent. He, he is a master storyteller, um, uh, has a background in fashion design, had this really interesting story of growing food in his neighborhood and, and, and having gotten ticketed for it, uh, for growing food on the sidewalk in front of his house and sort of turning this into a, a cause celeb that got coverage in the LA Times and then sort of blew up nationally and internationally. And Ron is great at telling this story about, you know, the need to overcome food injustice. Um, but what I think uh, will be interesting to see, and I, I think that Ron is, is, continues to try to figure out, um, and it's been a little bit since I've checked in with his status on this work, is you know, it's one thing to, to get a lot of attention for a TED Talk, but then to actually build the, the work in the community in a sustainable way and to do that style of organizing and institution building and finding the right partners and the right people and building real community capacity, that's a whole other ballgame. Um, and so Ron, you know, has got great uh, taglines, you know, he's the gangster gardener and he talks about, you know, I don't know if, if we'll have to bleep this, but, you know, he talks about plant some shit and he's got T-shirts that say plant some shit, you know, that have been sold all over the world. And he gets phone calls from people all over the world who are really inspired by his message of, you know, grow your own and, 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 to, and, and the empowering message that that brings. But I think, you know, one in certain ways, Ron Finley's narrative is also at times really attractive to folks who are not from these communities because he does offer this 
something that borders on the magic carrot approach, where he sort of says, you know, if we just grow this food, then we'll overcome these issues. And again, I think there's an important aspect of this, but we also need to attack systemic inequity at the social structural level. And in private conversations, Ron will talk to me about that and talk to others about that. Um, but, you know, do, when he talks about that, does he start to lose the sort of celebrity, you know, endorsements for the work that he does? That remains to be seen. And can he build community capacity in the long term in a way that a group like CSU and other community-based food justice activist groups have done over time? So I really think there needs to be a, a strategy for, for developing solutions that are grounded in real long-term community commitment, community development with local community members and activists leading the charge, you know, supported by allies from the outside. Um, and, and some of those key allies can be the kinds of folks who can help to tell the story in a way that appeals not just within the local community, but to potential allies on the outside as well. So, so that kind of narrative storytelling power looking forward, I think, is something that's really important. And, you know, back to the engaged scholarship idea from the start of this conversation, it's one of the roles that I'm trying in my small way to play. You know, I think, again, that I now have some sort of platform and will be listened to in certain policy domains or in certain academic domains, and maybe I can help tell this story in a way that reflects the needs and the interests of folks doing this work on, a gr on the ground uh, and, and communicating that to folks who can help us, you know, make a sustainable movement moving forward. Yeah, and the, towards the end of the book, you also make some fairly specific recommendations for local food justice groups on how they can deepen their impact. And one of it, one of those, it sounds like, is clearly control the story being told. Yep. But could you talk about that a little, and maybe what other recommendations you made towards the yeah, end? Yeah, in terms of you know, again, I think that there are these groups that a lot of times media and communication for so many community groups is is seen as this sort of extra thing that you know maybe some associate director does on the side. Um, and, you know, in the world that we live in, uh, as always, but in particular in sort of the digital age, I think, you know, if, if these groups are not telling their own story in an effective way, um, some other group is going to come in and tell the story of their community for them in a way that doesn't really reflect what the problems are and what the solutions can be. So, you know, I do push for them to think critically about this, to, to actively seek out partners who can help them do this storytelling work. Um, you know, there are a number of other recommendations in the book about sort of where we can go as a society, what um, folks who aren't, uh, what, what groups who are doing this work can do specifically, strategically, um, in terms of building, you know, economic uh, sustainability, in terms of staying rooted in their community throughout the process. But there's also some thoughts for folks who are not of these communities as well, um, folks like myself, who I think can play a productive role. Um, and, and so, you know, to speak to some of that, one, again, the book is called More Than Just Food for a reason, because I think when we think about, okay, how do we encourage communities to have healthier food, to eat healthier food, to live healthier lifestyles, you know, we automatically go to, all right, well, let's, you know, take this food desert, which is a term that I have some issues with. Some folks like to call it a food swamp. I think that speaks to it a little better. It's not, it's not that there's nothing there in a food desert, but it's that there's stuff there, but it's not nourishing in that way, right? But there's, you know, a lot of folks say, hey, let's just put a grocery store down, right? Build a garden 
and that'll solve our food desert problem, right? And I think there's been some research now to show that that is not the case, um, that, that simply plopping a grocery store down but not connecting it to other social uh, you know, social initiatives, um, not getting buy-in from the community from the start in terms of designing the grocery market or whatever it is, uh, in terms of having prices that match their, you know, their, their economic needs, you know, in terms of products that are culturally relevant. I mean, all these things are an important way to make sure. And, and then doing things like, you know, other sort of strategies for inviting folks in, um, uh, recognizing that it's not just if you build it, they will come. So I think that from the policymakers, you know, they need to realize that, that if they're going to try to solve the quote-unquote food desert problem, they need to recognize the problem isn't just food deserts, that that's actually a symptom of these broader social and structural issues. And that can be an ent- a valuable, a really valuable entry point because food matters. Food is central to our health, to our experience, to our everyday lives. It's this engaging way to get people going and it, 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 it's nourishing environmentally and personally. So it needs though to be connected to these other initiatives. And another sort of recommendation that I speak about in the book is, you know, if you are serious about concern and being concerned about how folks uh, have access to good food and ability to, to, to eat good food, you know, you should be supporting all sorts of other policies that promote social justice and economic justice. So if you want to help deal with food injustice, you should also be committed to affordable housing. Right, because if folks are spending, you know, somewhere a significantly less portion of their income, you know, on their rent every month, if they're not spending fifty, sixty percent of their income on their rent, then maybe they'll have a little more money uh, to to deal with, you know, to 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 spend on good food. If they're, you know, have a living wage and overtime hours and a schedule that makes sense or not having to work two or three jobs just to make ends meet and having other, you know, social programs that provide, you know, for healthcare, et cetera, um, you know, that then that will open up space and time and money to devote to food. So, you know, if you're committed to making sure that there's a just food system for all, that folks have an opportunity to eat good food, you know, it's not just about saying, hey, Let's solve this food desert problem. Hey, let's teach these people, you know, what good food is. A lot of times they already know what good food is. They know where they could potentially get it. They just can't afford it or they don't have time to. They have to make really difficult decisions in their life. And so I think really using food as part of a broader social justice movement, connecting it to other racial and economic justice initiatives that are happening around the country in this moment, um, that, that it's really justice that's priority and that food is this entry point into making that happen. And it's a valuable one. And it's a one that I always come back to because I think it's as promising as any arena uh, in the way it cuts across so much of our life and, and the social problems and environmental problems that we face and the kinds of solutions we might be able to see in the future. Great. Um, I think we've taken up too much of your time. The, it, the book is wonderful. I hope everybody has a chance to read it. Could you tell us you know, our, our traditional last question here on new books, what you're working on now? Sure, yeah. And, and this is always a frightening question for an academic who's just <laughs> spent the last five or six years getting this book out. Um, uh, so one, you know, I'm I'm really committed to seeing this book through for a little while. Um, again, that sort of engaged scholarly approach to me says that just because it's out now, it's not just you know 
this thing a uh, paperweight on the shelf, but um, using it to speak to academic audiences, scholarly audiences, um, but also practitioners, activists. You know, I've been trying to, you know, it's it's a book that is a scholarly work at heart. I tried to write it in a way that, that I feel like would be engaging for someone committed to these issues, but also doing something like this to me is really important. This podcast that we're doing now, you know, I've written some op-eds and some blog posts and and, and looking for opportunities to talk about these issues in more public arena. So that's one. Um, I'm also developing some new work, you know, through this project, as, as we've discussed in this conversation, got really interested in the role of money in social change and social justice. And so I'm in the process of developing some new work, um, looking at philanthropy and giving, uh, and, and markets as forces for social change, uh, the, the limitations of that, the possibilities of that, uh, particularly in the food system, uh, and, and also around animal issues. Not something I, I spent much time on this book, but I've published elsewhere looking at animal food and animal food production and, and issues related to that and sort of the future of animals in society and, and as part of our food system. I'm personally a, a vegetarian, vegan have been for, for many years, um, and, and I'm interested in, in both the environmental and the ethical implications of all of that. Um, so right now I'm, uh, you know, sort of when I get off of this conversation, I'm finishing up a chapter writing about, uh, what I'm referring to as philanthrocapitalists. So the Gateses and the Buffets and the Zuckerbergs and the way that their money is shaping global health and agriculture and education, uh, policy and media narratives. Um, also doing some work, uh, in the early stages, looking at a movement of folks that call themselves effective altruists. Uh, these are folks, uh, mostly very young, uh, folks, uh, who, uh, are sort of blending utilitarian philosophy with business principles and cost benefit analysis to try to figure out, they're mostly like engineers and math kind of people, figure out how do we allocate good, uh, allocate giving donations to, to make the most quantifiable good in the world. Um, and it's a really interesting, uh, interesting area that I'm starting to explore and uh, have both uh, interest in this. And one of their major cause areas that they're focused on is animal production and sort of the future of animal production. Also, global health and poverty are some issues, um, uh, among others. So those are some things I'm thinking about. Again, really interested in sort of the relationship between markets and money social change, social movements, the food system, and also, again, the storytelling power here. How does media shape the way we think about these issues? How is media used strategically by groups to put out certain solutions to characterize certain problems and to kind of tell the story of the future that we're trying to get to? So definitely some uh, you know, uh, themes that run through this pre this project uh, and some future ones, but also some new and exciting areas that I'm heading to as well. That sounds great. I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing your future work. Thank you. So Thank much. you so much for being with us. Thank today. you so much. This was great. I really appreciate it. Thanks. Have a good one. 